Welcome to the 43rd episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, was published last month and is receiving industry-wide praise. It can be ordered through his website, robertpearlmd.com, and all profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, so far, the data is trending in the right direction. For over a month, we've seen relatively low numbers of infections, hospitalizations, and deaths. Recently, there have been a few days with deaths under 200 and new infections fewer than 10,000. The reason is vaccination, with a growing proportion of the population becoming immune. But as is always the case with this virus, there are threats. What we're seeing are some geographies with over 70% of adults having been vaccinated, but other places with a percentage of the population that have received the vaccine being half of that rate. And the consequences of the difference in these numbers is far greater than the two to one ratio that our minds tend to envision. And here's why. In general terms, at 70%, one infected person transmits the virus to one other person. So the number of cases stays about the same over time. But at 35%, one person gives it to two people who then give it to four people, and then eight, 16, 32, and so on. All it takes is a super spreader event, and the numbers soar in one location while remaining relatively unchanged in places that are above the 70% level. As a result, these undervaccinated locations will remain hotspots and reservoirs of infection capable of producing a mutant variant that could infect the seemingly safe areas. And that is the other threat. Mutant strains resistant to the currently available vaccines. In the last coronavirus, the truth, we talked about the Delta variant that has ravaged India and now is the dominant one in Great Britain. We pointed out that it had reached our shores and in a couple of weeks gone from 6% to 10% of cases We said it would likely become the dominant strain in the United States, and that's what we're seeing. Estimates from the CDC are now that it accounts for more than 20% of cases in the US. By mid-July, it will be the most common cause of infection in the United States. Already in some Midwest and mountain states, this is the experience. And this so-called Delta strain is 50% more transmissible than the Alpha strain that began in Great Britain which was 50% more transmissible than the original coronavirus. And there's growing evidence that unlike its predecessors, the Delta strain is also more lethal, causing more severe 
infections in patients. Fortunately, the currently available vaccines, both the Pfizer and the Moderna, appear relatively effective at protecting people from this variant. Across the globe, South America is now the world's hotspot, with deaths in Brazil past the 500,000 mark. In India, the death toll most likely now exceeds 1 million. It could be close to 2 million. What we know is that the absence of testing capacity in India has led to a significant undercounting. And the surging cases in Great Britain have led Prime Minister Boris Johnson to extend pandemic-associated restrictions from June 21 to July 19th. In the US, Jeremy, a big deal is being made about whether the nation will reach the target set by President Biden of having 70% of people vaccinated by July 4th. Most likely that target won't be reached. On one hand, it's worrisome, just the growing vaccine hesitancy that we're seeing among those who remain unvaccinated. But whether we're at 70% or 68%, it's almost irrelevant. And let me explain. The 70% number is what we associate with herd immunity. That's the point where the virus slowly disappears on its own due to there being an insufficient number of people who remain susceptible. But in truth, it's, there's actually a continuum from complete vulnerability, that's where we were last year prior to there being a vaccine, to complete protection. 100% of people are either vaccinated or have recovered from COVID-19. Whether we're one point above or one point below the 70% mark, the incidence of infection stays relatively flat. But we're still vaccinating people, even at a slower rate. As such, there might be a few more infections at 68% than 70%, but the difference would be relatively insignificant. A couple of weeks later, we'd cross the 70% mark if we were at 68%, given that we're doing about a million vaccines a day. Mathematically, of course, 70% is better than 68%, but either number is nowhere near as safe as 90%. That is the real goal. Robbie, I'm confused by something I read this week. The NIH just published data saying that there were 17 million COVID-19 cases in the early months of the pandemic, rather than the 3 million or so that were reported. Didn't you and I point this out on Coronavirus The Truth on several of our earliest shows last year? Jeremy, your memory is correct. We pointed out that the combination of three factors made the numbers that the government was reporting and the media highlighting absurd. First, although initially we didn't know the exact percentage, it was clear early in the pandemic that some people had few, if any, symptoms. We now know that that's close to 50%. Second, with a shortage of testing kits, many people didn't get tested when the disease wasn't life-threatening. And finally, most people who were already staying home didn't have a major incentive to be tested. And for many, the process of getting a test and the potential risk of being around others who were sick were far more problematic than positive. The data on the real incidents were published in the journal Science Translational Medicine. It looked at blood samples taken between May 10th and July 31st of 2020 from 8,000 people who never had a positive test. Researchers found antibodies against COVID-19 were present in 304 of the blood samples. They concluded that for every person with a positive test during that time, there would have been 
4.8 people with undiagnosed cases. That is an astounding difference. Consistent with the idea that difficulties in obtaining the test at the time was a major contributor, the researchers found that black participants had the highest rate of unrecognized infection at 14%, with white participants at 2.5%. And similarly, data on age distribution was consistent with the assumptions around symptomatology of the infection in younger patients age 18 to 44, having the highest rate of unsuspected infection and contributing to the underreporting of the virus at the time. We can assume now that there are more people who are immune than we otherwise thought, but vaccination is still essential whether they were infected or not. Robbie, there's been a lot of talk about some of the risks of vaccines. Uh, what's the latest thinking on heart problems in young people after vaccination? Jeremy, simple questions often have complex answers, and this is one of them. The short answer is that we are seeing, in rare cases, teens and young adults, mainly boys and young men, having a variety of heart problems, including chest pain. The symptoms they're reporting are consistent with what's called myocarditis, an inflammation of the heart itself, and pericarditis, an inflammation of the sac that lines the outside of the heart. These symptoms are usually occurring after the second dose of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, and the problems show up for a few days up to a week after the shot is administered. In the overwhelming majority of cases, according to the CDC, the symptoms go away, but obviously with vaccine approval in teenagers having been given only a month or so ago, there isn't any good information on potential long-term sequela. And this is where the answer to your question becomes very complex. Because the alternative to not vaccinating a teenager or young adult isn't that they're gonna be healthy. For every person who gets this myocarditis problem, the data would indicate that 650 people would have become infected from COVID-19 had they not taken the vaccine. And of that group, one of them would get what's called multi-system inflammatory syndrome, a far worse and long-lasting medical problem than what we've seen so far in the patients with myocarditis. In fact, many of these individuals who get the multi-system inflammatory uh, syndrome have severe myocarditis. The point is that when it comes to this virus, there are always risks regardless of whether you do something or you choose not to. There's no absolutely safe choice. And what doctors try to do is balance the risks. And consistently the scales tip to vaccination as the safest course. In response to the reported cases, the CDC issued a warning about the risk but it continues to urge vaccine administration for individuals in this age group. How about the issue of decreased sperm count? Here the answer seems more straightforward. A study just published in JAMA showed that both the number of sperm and their quality did not decline after a first or second shot of either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines. 
And this goes along with the previous findings that showed that the virus can't be transmitted sexually. In this particular study, men aged 25 to 31 had their semen measured for volume, sperm motility, total sperm count, and sperm concentration. Specimens were taken before the first vaccine shot and 70 days after the second one, and there were no changes noted in the semen or sperm. In contrast to this study, which showed no problem after vaccination, a previous study in the journal Reproduction from January had shown that COVID-19 itself did seem to have a negative impact on the sperm. However, the abnormal findings reported remain debated. First, they were transitory. And second, they were consistent with what can happen following any type of infection, including the flu. In fact, these findings are associated with fever alone, and they can result from the medications that people take to reduce their elevated temperatures. And even obesity alone can reduce sperm quality and excess weight was a frequent comorbidity in patients who became seriously ill from COVID-19. Putting the pieces together, men who are worried about getting vaccinated due to a risk of lowered sperm counts should take comfort in knowing that there's no data that confirms a risk. And there's even the possibility that the vaccine offers added protection from fertility difficulties by preventing infection due to the possibility that infection itself could have a deleterious effect. Robbie, a listener wanted to know about medications to treat COVID-19. Is there really anything new? Jeremy, finding an effective drug to treat people who become infected has been a goal of drug companies throughout the pandemic. They would love to find a pill that can be taken early in the clinical course before patients needed hospitalization and avoid the more severe problems from developing. At the other end of the spectrum, they would love for there to be an IV medication that can be given to patients with severe infections to avoid having to place them on ventilators and in the process, save their lives. But alas, neither currently exists. In fact, so far the one medication that has proven effective is the steroid dexamethasone and it works not by attacking the virus, but by preventing the patient's body from mounting an excessive immunologic response that would do more damage than good for the person infected. Theoretically, researchers should be able to find a drug that mimics the body's antibody response, a drug that could be given to people who remain unvaccinated and could be administered broadly if there were a new mutant resistant to the current vaccines during the time that it took to develop an effective booster shot. But despite a lot of hype and even attempts to use the plasma from patients who have recovered, which would contain the specific antibodies, little success has been achieved. To date, three monoclonal antibody drugs have been given emergency use authorization, but their impact on saving patients' lives has been minimal. In pursuit of this holy grail, the Biden administration has now allocated 3.2 billion to this effort with the hope of getting across the finish line by the end of the year. The new program will be, will be called Antiviral Program for Pandemics. Many researchers thought that this type of medication would be available long before a vaccine could be developed, but so far 
the opposite has proven true. Another listener wanted to know if there's anything new in Japan with the Olympics coming up. Jeremy, this is a big mess. But as we said, the games are unlikely to be canceled. It's hard to imagine giving up billions in TV rights, no matter how limited the overall experience will be. But there won't be tourists in the stadium, which will have a major economic impact on the country. And healthcare experts are continuing to call for cancellation. Although the organizers are trying to get people into the events, including a significant number of Japanese citizens. But already some athletes are testing positive. The good news is that the infection rate in Japan has dropped significantly since we started talking about the Olympics a couple of programs ago. And the nation of 126 million people is administering 1 million shots a day. The games will begin on July 23rd. And hopefully, there'll be 11,000 Japanese citizens into the stadiums each day to cheer and watch, and hundreds of millions of people viewing it on TV. Robbie, I have a young son, and I am interested in birthday parties, as are a lot of people my age. One of my friends said that he heard that these are now considered super spreader events. Obviously, kids that young are not being vaccinated right now. What's the current thinking? Jeremy, the answer is, once again, very complex. Your friend was probably asking, or at least referring to a study that was published in JAMA Internal Medicine. Researchers there analyzed 2.9 million households with 6.5 million people. And they looked at January 1st, 2020 to November the 9th, 2020. They found that in the two weeks after a birthday, there were 8.6 more infections per 10,000 people, a 31% higher frequency than even the 90th percentile for households overall in terms of COVID infections, and even higher for individuals when compared to others who are celebrating a birthday. And the impact of a child's birthday was still higher than an adult birthday. Jeremy, given how many families decided to forego a gathering completely due to COVID-19, I think the actual impact of birthday parties was probably many times greater than what the data demonstrated. But the difficulty in deciding about hosting a birthday party or having your son attend one is that there are other issues beyond simply whether he would be exposed to the coronavirus. As you say, children under 12, there is no vaccine currently available. And as we know, young children can have asymptomatic cases. So screening children for the infection prior to the party isn't going to allow all of the individuals who might be infected to be asked to stay at home. As a result, the risk of your son becoming infected is greater if he goes to the party than if he stays home. However, the, the absolute risk given his age is certainly much less than for an adult and he's likely to be interacting with other kids once school starts in September. 
You know, it's this balancing the risks that's so difficult. It's probably a good year to just invite a few friends to your house, particularly the kids that your son plays with, rather than having him invite the entire class when his birthday comes. But when all is said and done, I'm very worried about the social isolation that has happened over the past 18 months, particularly in young children. And you as the father are going to have to figure out how to balance the risk of infection with a very low chance of a medical complication against the social isolation and the implication that it might have for the rest of his life. Robbie, our good news segment is something that is valued by listeners looking for something positive in the pandemic. What's new this week? The really good news is that only 0.8% or less than one in 100 deaths occurred in fully vaccinated individuals in the month of May. This means that the vaccines are incredibly effective. You'd expect that if the vaccines weren't protective, that at least 30% of the deaths would be in vaccinated people, particularly since the elderly and those with chronic diseases, which are the two populations with the highest mortality, were vaccinated early and over 75% of them have received both doses. The magnitude of this vaccine effectiveness should be celebrated every day. In a previous podcast, I talked about hearing from doctors who had lost four patients in one day. Now we have entire states without a single death on several days each month. And today an article was published in the highly respected journal Nature that demonstrated that the same process we talked about in our last coronavirus, The Truth podcast, that we said happens in the bone marrow of people after an infection, also happens in the lymph nodes close to the vaccine administration site after vaccination. And that is stimulating development of the cells that produce antibodies so that they are primed to respond immediately should the person be exposed to the virus again. And based on that research, it's possible that immunity will last for many years or even potentially across our entire lives Unless, of course, there's a viral mutation that makes the coronavirus itself resistant to the antibodies that our bodies produce, that the vaccines generate. Assuming these findings hold up, this is not just good news, this is great news. In terms of other good news, concert venues are opening up. The Foo Fighters opened Madison Square Garden to a massless crowd of 20,000. The sold out concert required proof of vaccination for admission. Children under the age of 16 could be admitted with a vaccinated parent, but only if they had a negative COVID-19 test. For a city that has suffered so badly, particularly early in the pandemic, this performance felt like a huge weight had been lifted off people's shoulders. And 3,000 miles away in California, the theme parks, including Disneyland and Universal Studios are reopening and several of them fully vaccinated people won't be required to wear masks. Marby, last month we introduced a new segment. Based on a listener's request, we included one non-COVID-19 item. The response from other listeners has been overwhelmingly positive. I actually encourage anyone with strong feelings one way or another 
you know, keep the show only about COVID or expand it to bring our honest, unbiased perspectives to other major healthcare developments as well? Let us know. Uh, is there something you can offer our listeners this week, Robbie? Jeremy, this was one of the biggest weeks when it comes to overall health care in the United States. The U.S. Supreme Court upheld the Affordable Care Act by a 7-2 to two vote. The challenges to the law were attorney generals from 18 states, led by Texas, who claimed that the requirement for all Americans to obtain health care coverage was unconstitutional. At issue, once again, was the individual mandate to purchase coverage. To prevent overturning this landmark health care bill that had expanded insurance to approximately 20 million previously uninsured Americans, Congress in 2017 essentially rescinded the individual mandate to purchase coverage when it set the penalty at zero dollars. The challengers now argued that you can't eliminate a key provision of a piece of legislation without scrapping the rest. Rather than ruling on the issue directly, the judges concluded that the challengers didn't have what is called standing, the legal right to bring suit, since they hadn't suffered any injury or damage as a result of the individual mandate, given that the states were not required to pay any other cost. You may remember that when the bill was first passed, the question the Supreme Court addressed was whether Congress could require all Americans to have coverage, rather than that being a state issue. The individual mandate with its penalty made the legislation a tax, something Congress is entitled to do based on the Constitution. The challengers hoped that the elimination of the penalty meant that the bill was now no longer taxed and therefore no longer constitutional. The court ruling avoided revisiting this issue that had been so contentious since it was first passed several years ago. This was the third time the law had been upheld by the courts, but, but this time the margin was bigger than any time in the past. Many observers now believe that the law is being seen by a growing percentage of Americans and by legal experts as positive and as unlikely to be eliminated through future legal action, particularly with so many of the more conservative judges, including two recent additions, Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, voting with the more liberal members of the court itself. Jeremy, as the death toll rises around the world, the US is coming under increasing pressure to share more of our vaccine stores. At the same time, as we said in the last episode, it's impossible to be sure we won't want it and need it sometime in the future. Now, this is not a uniquely difficult position for our nation. Great Britain has heard the same criticisms and now India is being criticized for prioritizing its citizens above people in other nations. As a political observer and expert, what advice would you give a president or prime minister? Robbie, you sure know how to ask the tough questions. Um, I'm of the belief that any government's first responsibility is to ensure the health and safety of its own people. This means from a military, economic, educational, and health perspective. I'll preface my thoughts by saying that I'm not the biggest fan of Americans' history of foreign policy. 
I have ethical issues with sending tons of money or aid to foreign countries that often, you know, never gets to the intended recipients. When we have so many issues at home that we need to fix, while also watching the national debt continue to grow at a terrifying rate. Should we be more worried about issues in other countries than we issues we have at home? I don't think it's right to send money to support foreign regime change when we could use that money to say, for example, help the homeless veteran problem we have in the United States. All of that being said, I am by no means an isolationist and I understand that the international political climate is a complicated one and one that's much too complicated for a layperson my, like myself to understand. Um, I do think we should take care of our people first but I also know that we need to fight this virus globally in a way that in and of itself is helping to prevent a much more dangerous or vaccine resistant variant from popping up and coming over here. I think we should absolutely be helping other countries when it comes to vaccination efforts. And I think we could do it in a creative way. Creativity is something that I think we can all agree on that our government struggles with when it comes to solving problems. I'm just thinking out loud here, but is there ways we can ramp up production of the vaccines by having Pfizer or Moderna teach foreign vaccine manufacturers how to produce the vaccine or to helping generic manufacturers get started here and then help ship some of those surplus out? So to sum it up, I would tell the president to make sure that the people at home are taken care of while creatively finding ways to increase vaccine production at home via generic drug manufacturers and helping foreign drug manufacturers produce a vaccine as well. Jeremy, going back to the issue of the Supreme Court. As a physician, I'm confused about why medical rules and licensing is done at the state level and not the federal level. I can see why in the era of the covered wagon, this might've made sense. But with telemedicine and modern airplanes, I could be on the opposite coast in less time than it takes to drive from San Francisco to San Diego. And in driving through New England, I'm likely to be in four different states in four hours. Should we change this? And what would it take to do so? Robbie, I've been doing podcasts in the healthcare world for years now. I've heard about people complain about this being done at the state level since I started. Um, as you point out, in the age of telemedicine and airplanes, this seems so out of date. As I said, people have complained about this issue for a long time, just like how before the pandemic, they complained about the lack of adoption of telehealth in the United States. Why is it that the American healthcare system takes so long to solve obvious problems? Well, I'm typically someone who thinks government should happen as much as possible at the state level. Medical licensing is something that absolutely needs to be done at the federal level this day and age. I hope like the adoption of telehealth needing the pandemic, it doesn't take another major health crisis for this needed change to happen. Robbie, the number of people being tested for COVID-19 is going down. Is that a threat to our nation's health or is it a good sign that we're nearing the end of the pandemic? Jeremy, when I look back at the past 18 months and try to extract valuable lessons from COVID-19, there are many. One lesson is the need to get ahead of anything as threatening as this lethal virus. Until now, our nation was always a step behind. A second lesson is to focus on the science, not the politics, a recommendation that's easier said than done. And the third lesson is that if an action is important, it needs to be not only mandated, but enforced. And when that doesn't happen, compliance diminishes and tensions erupt between those who voluntarily do so and those who refuse to follow the recommendations. COVID-19 testing with expected isolation for those who test positive 
and quarantine for all their contacts is such an example. And make no mistake, for the people who adhere to these expectations, transmission declined and new cases, hospitalizations and deaths diminished. But most people didn't notify contacts that they had been exposed. Most likely few of them quarantined for 10 days, even if they were contacted. In fact, when researchers at the CDC looked at 75,000 people who, who tested positive, they found that only one third of them identified their contacts. And we can assume that even among those contacted, many couldn't afford to stay home, or they just felt it wasn't necessary since they felt so good. Having the expectation in place may make elected officials and organizational leaders feel like they've done something, but without electronic tracing and strict enforcement, the ultimate impact is relatively minor. You know, we said in our good news segment today that the theme parks in California would be opening and many would be allowing people who had been vaccinated to enter without masks. But they're not planning to require proof where check the information at the entrance gate. An unvaccinated guest will be expected to wear masks and signs will be posted, but it seems unlikely that they will. You know, if at this point they've chosen not to be vaccinated, what's the likelihood they're gonna comply with some sign telling them that they have an obligation to wear a mask? A couple of episodes ago, you asked me about my flight from hell when the woman behind me on an airplane was sneezing and coughing for five hours and no one on the plane did anything to isolate her. I pointed out that the airline industry is more interested in the appearance of safety than actually keeping people from being exposed. The theme parks seem to be following suit. There are ways to contact trace electronically. There are ways to check people electronically and by in-home visits to see if they're complying. But if as a nation, we're not willing to do any of this, to take the enforcement actions that are needed to achieve compliance. If we're not able to make sure that people are either vaccinated or wearing a mask, then all of this is just words. None of it will make a difference. For most of COVID-19, the United States led the world in having the most cases and the most deaths because we didn't match our words with our actions. Fortunately for us, vaccination has saved the day. I can argue for a range of approaches to control viral spread, depending upon how aggressively we want to be to ensure that people follow the best public health policies. Whether we do it or not is one issue, but what I can condone are policies that sound as though they're going to make a big difference and keep people healthy and safe when the people who create them know, or at least should know, that there won't be a salutary impact, that there won't be a major reduction as is implied and promised. When it comes to people's lives, I believe elected officials and public health officers need to tell the nation the truth and explain the reasoning for the recommendations they're making. And then they must be sure that people's actions match the words. When politics replace science, people's lives and their health suffer. And that's been a major problem for our country since the coronavirus came ashore. Hopefully Jeremy will do better next time. 
As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.